how can we expect people to care about one another when we built a society that's like, you make it on your own or you failed on your own? My guest today is a scholar of medical humanities and an assistant professor of English at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, where she teaches about the impact of disease upon social norms. Her work has been featured on the Huffington Post, CNN, and many more outlets, including, yes, a solutions journalism publication. And that's where I was introduced to her work in a stunning article she wrote entitled Grieving Our Collective Loss, One Stitch at a Time. Dr. Kari Nixon, welcome to the show. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. Kari, I am so delighted, first of all, just to get to know you. And I reached out to you. I mean, literally, before I finished reading the article, all I could think was, I've got to have this woman on the podcast. Um, tell, tell our audience, what is medical humanities? Uh, that's a, a great opening question. Um, <laughs> you know, pragmatically, medical humanities would just be essentially any field of study that's not a hard science that takes that medical question. So an easy example would be medical ethics. That's philosophy and medicine, um, the history of medicine, medical anthropology. Um, conceptually, though, the way I describe it is a, um, a discipline that asks us to reframe or to consider how we are framing scientific questions so that we make sure that we're avoiding all too human errors of bias and prejudice um, that we can see from historical missteps in the history of medicine. So framing that in today's world in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, what does that mean? I mean, you're someone who has spent your your career and your life thinking about germs and disease. And in fact, you just um, uh, released your, your new book. I want to get the title right. Germ Theory, Disease, and the Dilemma of Human Contact. What a timely, <laughs> timely work, but one that you began years and years ago. Yes? Yeah, I, I I feel though as though if I'm not carrying around a copy of the book to prove it, sounds like I'm just making it up to start conversations with people right now. Um, one of the key things that's come to my mind in this time of COVID, and you know, I had a CNN op-ed, and I, I really loved my editor there, but that piece went through two or three different publications. It kept getting killed. Um, I joked at the time that I could have made my living of kill fees, which is when an, an editor wants your piece and then for whatever reason cuts it. Uh, because what I was saying felt very controversial to them. And and I don't think it is. But um, the way I saw a potential for reframing through a medical humanities lens at the very beginning of COVID is the way that I see a Western society constantly, A, wanting to find the origin point of a disease, I have some questions about why socially, what social and power hierarchies make us want to point a finger at who started it. It feels very toddler-like to me in some ways. Um, but mm. secondly, and perhaps more importantly, I've noticed the very convenient way in which those narratives never seem to suggest that these things start in the West. They always seem to be stated to start in Eastern and South Asia or Africa. Um, and one of my um, 
sort of mentors and heroes in the field, Priscilla Wald, in her book, Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative, she does a really nice rhetorical job of just saying, here's the history of every time we try to identify an origin point of a, of a pandemic and just laying it out. Here we said East Asia, here we said South Asia, here we said Africa, here we said Africa, here we said South Asia. And, and she lets you draw your own conclusions about whether that is very convenient for a Western audience. I, and I think this is why my articles kept getting killed, I sort of wanted to be more provocative. I'm a little bit, I think, scrappier than Wald um, to my own detriment. And I wanted to say, no, this is a problem. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know what statistical and quantitative research design questions in framing are leading us to the same answer over and over and over again. But I think somebody ought to go out there and examine the sort of metadata um, meta-analytics of why the studies are always showing these same answers to make sure that there's not a bias with those mm -hmm. informatic frameworks. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while I'm not an epidemiologist, I would never claim to be, my first PhD work that I began and quickly shifted to medical humanities was in quantitative research design and statistics. So I, I am very well apprised of the fact that these things can be shaped in ways that give us problematic answers if we're not aware and double checking and cross-referencing to make sure that we have the most unbiased objective research design that we can. So you, you talked about how um, sort of pointing the finger of where something like this comes from, you described it as toddler-like. So what, tell me, I mean, Obviously, there, there's all this, this question about where the virus started, and um, our president believes that it, it started in, in Wuhan, and now there's this debate about whether it came from the animal or if it was, you know, started in a lab or whatever. Um, is that, and I know it's important, obviously, that we understand that, uh, how and where it started to keep it from happening again, and also as a means of, of deciphering everything we need to know to um, to come up with a vaccine and treatment, et cetera. But from the, from the perspective of a medical humanist, where should our focus be, do you believe, right now? That's such a great question. And, and I love the caveats you build in, which are so important that, of course, I am aware that there are reasons we want to know these things. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it seems to me that beyond, beyond the purposes of being able to genetically trace where a virus began and where it mutated, which is an important part of the epidemiological process, beyond that, I, I don't know what social value we get from knowing who started it? I have two toddler daughters and I'm just at the age where mm. as a parent, I- No, I mommy, understand. she did it. No, mommy, yeah. she did it. <laughs> and I finally get why as a parent, you know, as a child, that feels deeply unfair because you know the narrative and who started it. As a parent, I now get why I don't care who started it. We all just have to be kind to one another in this chaotic world. And, and lest I sound like a, you know, preschool teacher, simplifying complex human dynamics, at the same time, that's sort of where I want to go with this. There are some limited purposes, I agree, for understanding where and how something began. 
I'm not sure that the lay public really benefits, and I include myself in that, from, from knowing, did it start in this market because these people eat those foods? I mean, what I wanted to say in many of these iterations of my article that people were kind of too nervous to publish was, um, couldn't we, you know, if we reframed it just as a thought experiment, couldn't we say that American meat packing plants that, you know, have been deregulated in the recent past might have as rampant an opportunity for disease to fester and grow? And, and might there not be some societies in the world that think our meat packing industry is as um, grotesque as some people have postulated the wet markets in Wuhan are. I mean, I just, I think mm-hmm. being able to step outside our norming and as, as this podcast does so well, our othering and to realize that we could look like the other to somebody else. That does not mean I'm saying that the, the disease started here or that I'm denying science, but that I, I, I'm not sure where we as the general public get benefit from from a narrative that help, that allows us to double down on othering mm. it certainly helps virologists right and and they're doing some important tracing genetic work that needs to happen i'm not sure that beyond that it's a much social social use instead i want to say i don't care who started it how can i help these people and in fact by you focusing on who started it over here we're not able to focus on the fact that this is a global shared problem um, that we all have a role in. And as I said on a local news channel here, again, being able to say you started it because you did this allows us to say, well, it's not going to get us over here in America because we don't have those practices. It has this domino effect, not just in sort of not caring about the so-called other, but in believing that we're somehow protected from that by not being the other, which Mm -hmm. is false and which allowed it to get here and to grow here. And we've seen that with um, the AIDS crisis by believing that this was a disease of the homosexual population. It grew into other populations. We've seen it throughout history. And so I, I almost feel that that knowledge is almost very harmful. The knowledge that, you know, this idea that it started here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There. Yeah. Okay. So I want to pick up on the the othering that that you talked about because there's so many things that, that we could talk about there. Um and and one of them is, you know, we we've seen um in the last several weeks um, increasing numbers of protests around the country with people saying, okay, it's time to open up. It started with a very small group in one state and then it, it snowballed. Um, we understand everybody wants the economy to get back to where it was. N- none of us wants to be in the position that we're in. Um, and I wanted to talk to, to, to get your thoughts on those folks who are protesting and the ones who are not, and look at them and otherize that group, if you will, because the whole concept of, of, of this podcast, podcast, as you said, is, is to understand that we are all someone else's other at some point in our lives. So the group that's protesting is considered the other by those who say, we need to, st- we need to stay locked down. And those who say we need to stay locked down are 
the other to the group of folks who are saying, no, it's time for us to open up. So from, from, from your perspective, um, as, as a medical humanist, as a professor, as someone who studies disease and the impact of it on our society, what can you say to help us in this arena at this moment? The thing that struck me a lot with COVID is the history of Mary Mallon, who is more commonly known as Typhoid Mary, but I don't like to call her that, um, and the healthy carrier narrative. Uh, Mary Mallon was an Irish immigrant living in New York. Um, She was determined by a man on the health board to be a healthy carrier of typhoid fever. Uh, He came into her place of business while she was cooking. She was a cook. Um, came into where she was cooking and said, you know, you're killing all these people and you have to quit your job right now. And what her, she was, she chased him out with a carving fork. Um, She was not, she was not trying to hear that. And, you know, she has this reputation. Even today, you can find articles about how she just didn't care that she was killing people. And I don't know, perhaps it's just my unique way of looking at the world. I can't really explain why I see it this way, but I've always had a great deal of sympathy for her um, living as she did about 10 years after germ theory was widely accepted. This was somewhat new understanding of science and, you know, having somebody storm into her place of business and say, you know, you have to stop earning money. She was, you know, not wealthy, but had managed to sort of bootstrap her way up into a a decent working class job. And and she never, as far as she knew, she never had typhoid fever, which at its worst is a very, very scary looking illness. So I think she very much felt like I would have known if I had this. And, And you're here saying I'm killing people and that I have to essentially commit to a life of poverty because you say with some invisible evidence that I can't see And that doesn't mirror what I feel about my body. I'm healthy. I've never had this bug. I've had a great deal of sympathy with her. And that has helped me in this time where, you know, I'm on the camp that we should social distance. We should protect everybody. But I get it. I mean, I think we're all struggling with the idea that we don't feel sick. It seems okay. And so if you have a a population that's already standing with great skepticism in opposition to the liberal media, the liberal professoriate, and increasingly what they see as liberal-minded science in a world that everything, all these things, science and the media and professors should not be politicized, but, but they are right now in this age we're living in. Yeah. I I actually understand why they feel like it makes no sense to trust what I'm saying or you're saying or some scientist is saying about their body when they don't feel sick. They have no evidence that they've ever had had COVID, which like typhoid fever can make you really, really visibly, obviously sick at its worst. So it's kind of this false dichotomy where it seems like you would know if you'd had it. And it's just, I think that's just human nature is to to think, well, that doesn't feel like what I've had. Um, I mean, I I think if we're being honest and I'll be the one that will take the risk and say like, 
there are definitely times where I've probably made a decision to run to the store and feel like, oh, do I really need a mask right now? I feel fine. I'm fine. And, you know, at the end of the day, I probably put on a mask because my mom calls me and she shames me into doing it, you know, and I'll be real and say that I've encountered that. And I would, I would be hard pressed to believe that all of us that are on board with social distancing haven't had one moment like that where we feel okay. And it's hard to believe that we keep needing to do that. I really need to do this. And I think if we're, unless we're honest about that, we can't have a sincere conversation with the other side. Yeah, I I agree. And I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I get it as well. So I think if we, if we look at it from the perspective of what is expected of us as members of a democratic society, what are our responsibilities to each other? Because we certainly have a responsibility to ourselves, but we also are part of a social contract. And that contract is being put to the ultimate test right now. Do we accept what the scientists are saying and, and basically say what you just articulated? I don't feel sick. You know, I, I don't have it. There's no way I could have it. I just, you know, need to get back to my life. I need to get back to making money and paying my bills. Where does the social contract come into play here. And uh, to me, that's one of the things that we're really grappling with as a society, not only now, but post-pandemic, once we finally come out of this. Right. Um, My thoughts go in two directions. Um, The first one is, you know, I, I talk about myself sometimes as a science communicator. And somebody mentioned to me recently that you know, they tend to think of that term as somebody who takes science and communicates it to the lay public. And I conversely see myself as somebody who's trying to help experts and people in the media understand how how they can get the lay public to listen more. Um, and I guess where I think about that is, yes, there's a social contract and, and yes, we're debating individual rights to have liberty and mobility versus a collective right to health. But as I've kind of alluded to, before we can really get there, the problem is that is is convincing one another that we live in a shared reality. And in Mm. the era, ever since the seed of doubt of fake news was planted in the mind of American public, I think that is the greatest challenge. I don't think we can discuss rights versus rights until we can say, let's come to the table. We have a shared set of facts. Yes. We have a shared set of facts. Yes. And I hope this doesn't sound condescending. It, It may, I don't mean it to, but my sense as, you know, I am very left leaning, I am very liberal, is that it's our job to stop shouting, do, you know, care about the common good. And and I certainly do that. My book that you just mentioned, it's all about the common good. I've spent many years saying the problem in America is that we've lost track of the common good. And and since COVID, my, my belief has been more, we believe in a common good and we have different senses of how to get there. 
And it's for us on the left. Here's where I think it might sound condescending. I think we may be more willing to have a conversation. And I think it's for us to figure out how to entice the other side to come to the table with us. So why do you, why do you, why do you say that? Which part? (laughs) The, The part that you said might sound condescending. Why do you feel that it's up to the, the, those on the left to convince those on the right to come to the table? You know, I haven't really sussed out why I feel that it's kind of a gut instinct. Um, Possibly it has to do just pragmatically with the fact that I know I live in a liberal echo chamber and I'm willing to admit that. And so that's the audience I have to talk to and say, I can get you to listen to me. I, I know that I will be met with much more suspicion and skepticism by somebody on the polar opposite set of beliefs. So if I could get and mobilize enough left-leaning people to do what you're doing um, in the project of this podcast and say like, let's also stop otherizing because we are. Um, And part of what I think for my example, what I try to do is take those very dangerous risks that I think if we're being honest, we as liberals don't want to do either of saying, I'm denying that I also struggle with feeling that I'm healthy and it's fine. If I could just say that, maybe if I could say that to somebody who's very conservative, who's doubting all this, maybe it would feel more sincere to them instead of both of us feeling like we're just towing a party line. I'll do it. I'll take the sacrifice and I'll say, here are all the logical fallacies that I'm also making that I'm trying to deny because I want to win this argument, maybe the step is to say, no, I also probably blindly believe a couple of things, you know? I probably make this logical error too. And I'll say that to you, and then maybe you'll be willing to lay down that guard. I was listening to your very first episode of the Ivy League terrorist. Mm, And he said something similar that it just took that moment of a guard being so sincere with him that he was willing to believe that he was willing to believe there wasn't an agenda. And I don't think there's a science behind it. I just think it's a gut feeling I have. So that I'm so glad you brought that other episode up um, about the, this, this young man who was a recruiter for Al Qaeda. Um, and how the guard who helped him make the transition to see, to move in a more positive direction, he was vulnerable. He showed his authentic self. And I think that, um, you know, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan and Brene is all about, you know, her, her mantra, you know, there is no courage without vulnerability. Yes. Okay, there is no courage without vulnerability, plain and simple. And so this moment requires all of us to be courageous enough and therefore vulnerable enough to talk about what we are really thinking and feeling and, and, and try to find the commonality so that we can move together as a society forward and not come out of this even more divided than we were before we went into it. 
which, you know, I, at the beginning, I thought that this was the one, this was the thing that was going to bring us together. And then all of a sudden it went the exact opposite direction. Right. And it became politicized. And now it's all about, you know, you can almost tell somebody's political leanings, you know, by whether they're wearing a mask or not. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. So we've got to find it within ourselves to be courageous enough to talk about what we're feeling. Do Do you agree with that? Oh yeah, when you when you said there is no courage without vulnerability, I I think that just so nicely encapsulates what I'm at, at points struggling to articulate here. And I see, as I said, I I see my role as maybe trying to talk to experts to get them to do this. And I I think what I try to model is like I'll do it. I'll be the one to take the scary leap and say like, yeah, like we're we make these assumptions too, and we make these logical problematic leaps too. Because I think that's what we must do, or we all just stay suspicious of one another. Um, yeah, I really exactly. love that. There's yeah. no courage without vulnerability. I think that just perfectly says how I feel about it. And, and to that point, the second thought I, I I was thinking of when you said the social contract, and particularly after the pandemic and after the quarantine ends, is another thing I've thought about with the story of Mary Mal, and I believe I alluded to it a bit, is, you know, part of the problem is that we have this very, very individualistic society of America where it's sort of, you know, sink or swim on your own. There's this sort of narrative that if you didn't make it, maybe you didn't try hard enough. Mm-hmm. And and then all of a sudden, we're asking people to care about the collective good. I think we're fooling ourselves, even in the side of things where I'm like, we have to care about the collective good. I mean, that's very much sort of my broken record mantra. But how can we expect people to care about one another when we built a society that's like, you make it on your own or you failed on your own? And I I think that... Such a great point. Such a great point. Thank you. Um, I I think there is maybe an opening if, if one is having... Uh, struggling to understand why these people are protesting social distancing, certainly not in every case, but in some cases that may very well be that these are people that bought into that narrative and like Mary Mallon have to work, live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, we saw the president of Brown University come out with an op-ed saying that Brown can't afford to go into the fall without students. I mean, universities are living paycheck to paycheck. And so I do think that um, it asks us to have some understanding of the fact that we built a society that doesn't have any safety net for these people. Mm. Now, that is imbricated in a set of politics where a, a sort of individualistic person may not have supported politics that promote a safety net. And that's its own thing that we've got to be able to come to the table over. And yet again, I see it as there is room for, for people on the left to say, of course, they're not caring about the common good right now. We're asking for something that hasn't been built into our society. So we can't just fall back on saying that makes no sense. You're a bad person. There's right. hundreds, it's like and hundreds of years. It's like flipping a switch. It's like flipping a switch. You yes, started exactly. one way. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. 
You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis, which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy, and implemented social distancing measures quickly, limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stockers, added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information, and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. I want to talk more about the human toll. You spend a lot of your career um, talking about the impact of of death. Um, Your article that I alluded to at the beginning of this conversation that you wrote um, for Yes magazine, Grieving Our Collective Loss One Stitch at a Time. So explain to our audience what the one stitch at a time is. And if you've got it there with you, please show it to us at the end of your explanation. Yeah, thank you. Um and as you mentioned, this is sort of how you and I made contact. Um, I, you know, I study infectious disease and germs, but really what I think I study is human nature in crisis. And there's no bigger crisis for us as mortal beings than death and disease. Um, and so You know, I I spend a lot of my days, I think, you know, I'm not like sad all the time. I can't be. (laughs) Um, But I I do think about death very deeply and very often. And and as this was happening, I just kept thinking about all the people that we were losing. Um, But people that I never known and never will know. And I can't possibly even go meet all the families of these people, you know, with the death toll at the level that it is. I'll never know what the sort of rippling outward effect of these absences of lives is now. And so I just, I I really wanted something embodied, something that I could feel with my body um, to make sense of that. As I mentioned, you know, COVID itself is kind of elusive because we may have it and never feel it in our own bodies. So I started a blanket where I was um, stitching uh, it was supposed to be 10 stitches per death um, so that I could feel almost, um, I, I almost wanted to feel the exhaustion. I wanted to feel my inability to keep up with it in a way that wasn't purely psychological. Um, I wanted to feel tiredness in my fingers. I don't know if that sounds masochistic, but I just, I wanted to feel something bodily, not just this strange, surreal absence of a presence that I had never known of these people that were lost. Um, 
You know, I just took the blanket out of this room, so mm. it's not in okay. here anymore, but it's big and messy and it's ugly. And that's exactly what I wanted. I, um, so I did, you know, because it has different stitches per row because of the death toll, it looks like this sort of chaotic bar graph. Um, and I wanted it to look that way. I wanted it to mirror what I feel, um, in this chaos where sometimes at least living in America, I, I don't, I want to believe there's grownups and I'm not sure there's grownups right now. Um, the grownups I see seem as confused as anyone else. And, and I've never lived through that before. Um, so I wanted it to be messy, but I also think that like the messiness of humanity is both my favorite and least favorite part of being alive. Um, we are so beautiful at our best. Like I, I just sometimes almost can tear up about how beautiful humans can be to one another. And we can also be so, so terrible. It's like, I, I don't know. It's like, you have to take the most awful parts of being on this planet. Even if that's, you know, sort of natural disasters that have nothing to do with human causality, such as viruses. Um, you have to take that that risk and that fear and that horror if you want to get the best of us when we're at our best. And I just, I find that amalgam of human nature on a micro and macro level, just, it gives me chills anytime I think about it. What do you plan to do with the blanket when it's finished? I want to make it like a wall tapestry, like a, like some people hang quilts. Mm -hmm. um, and I may hang it in my office because, you know, teaching what I do, I think it could be every semester, my students in medical humanities have to do what I call a digital advocacy project, um, where they pick an issue that is not very commonly talked about. So it can't be like breast cancer awareness. It can't be something uh, mm -hmm. super well-known and it can't just be awareness. It has to go beyond awareness. Um, and they often struggle with those being the only parameters. Students mm -hmm. today sometimes really like to just write their 10 page paper and get out. And so I may hang it as like an example of how far out there it is safe to be with this project. Mm -hmm. um, I did, mm -hmm. in fact, have one student. That's actually where the idea came from. I was thinking of ideas for them. And I did have one student that did a blanket just for Washington State's death toll. And she tracked her progress on Instagram um, as her digital portion of the project. So as we're um, recording this today, um, we're almost up to 80,000 deaths here in the United States, which is just inconceivable. I mean, how do you even wrap your, your brain around that? Um, how often are you, are you knitting now every few days? So I will say I've taken about a 10 day hiatus from it. Um, but in general, I was knitting at least one to two rows a day. Um, obviously I have to do it the day after, um, sure. so that I have the death tolls and it mm -hmm. takes about, um, 30 minutes a row just because it's so big. Um, so yeah, sometimes I, I, I tend to probably do it every other day because I just want to break. Um, I'm a mom of two small kids. 
I do a lot of other projects right now related to yeah. infectious disease. Um, and I would think too that that you would need a bit of a mental break. I mean, I, I get you 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 articulated so beautifully why you started doing this in the first place and the need to actually feel the weight of the loss of these human lives. And you know, none of us, as you say, will never know the ripple effects um, throughout the families and the communities where these precious souls live. Um, and so having something tangible, I think is such a, such a, a beautiful thought and idea. And, um, I'm going to ask you to, to send some, some photos so that we can okay. post them. Along yeah, I'm with sorry. I... No, 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 no worries. I, I just, you know, I want our audience, since we are audio and video, I want our audience to be able to go to the blog post and, and to the show notes and, and see, and then you can just kind of keep us updated as time goes on. Um, if there were were one thing that you could leave our audience with today that would give us some hope for the future and how we might come out of this um, feeling more connected to each other as opposed to more divided, what would that one thing be? In my study for my book where I track a different disease in each chapter and the different social, generally social justice issues that were raised by each disease. What I have found is that at its best, disease reveals that the status quo or the quote unquote normal we've been living through was already diseased. And if society can reckon with that and accept that truth, they are then able to rebuild. Said rebuilding is a necessity because of an epidemic or a pandemic, say, but also they find in that space that it was an opportunity for beautiful new regrowth that needed to happen anyway. And I will not say that I'm sure that will happen for us, but I will say if we can hold on to that historical precedent, then we'll be able to fight for the good and for the better and for the rebuilding and not complacently go back to the status quo. I so hope you are you are right. Um, and I, I I agree that you know we have we have been a society that has been ill for quite some time. And this is an opportunity for us to, to rebuild and to, to experience new growth and be the best of the beautiful humans that, that we are, that we are capable of being. Kari, thank you so very much, Dr. Kari Nixon, for sharing such beautiful thoughts and perspective with our audience. And I look forward to continuing our conversation in the weeks and months to come. Please keep us updated on your quilt. Um, I hope we can stop knitting soon. I really do. Um, thank you, Kari. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was mine. And thank our audience for having the time and the courage to listen to what Kari has to say with an open mind and for giving her permission to speak. Um, please stay safe and healthy. Be well. We'll see you next time.